We are, obviously, and we were praying this just before we started. And, and bear in mind, most Sundays we meet at 9.45 for a little bit of prayer. We're a little bit late today, maybe a bit of worship as well. You're very welcome to join us, particularly if you're heading up a ministry or involved in leading something. Do come and join us. And one of the things we prayed for this morning was the other churches in town. And we are passionate that all the churches in our town grow, thrive, are blessed, um, see the work of God taking place, get God's attention and God's smile. We're not going to rescue Chesterfield on our own. Like, it's as obvious, isn't it? And one of the pitfalls a church can fall into is thinking that they're the answer to everything and the new Jerusalem is in this school hall, you know, every Sunday. Not true. You know, we are just part of the fabric of Christianity in our town and we want to pray for a blessing through our whole town. And Christianity is a remarkable thing. If you're just dipping your toe into what this whole following Jesus thing is, it is a remarkable phenomena. I mean, there have been dictators and empires that have tried to pull down Christianity since the moment Jesus emerged onto the scene. For over 2,000 years, it has been stood against by some of the worst despots, dictators, tyrants, and political systems the world has ever seen, and we're still here. And growing. Over 60,000 people a day are surrendering their lives to Christ around the world. And the answer is, or the question is maybe, how is that even a thing? Jesus never went more than 25 miles from where he lived. How is that still a thing? Most of the world's major tyrannical psychopathic leaders have employed everything they've got to tear down the work of Christ and they've never managed to do it. So before we go into Joshua, I thought I'd do a little bit of a history lesson. Because one of the major empires that stood against the birth of Christianity was, of course, Rome. Now, I've got a little map. I, I didn't make it myself. I got it off Google. But I've got a little map which Q Branch are now going to put up. No! No, that's our logo. But there is a... Come on, Maria. You know, you've got the skills. Oh, well. Ignore the map. Well, the map may appear at some point. Uh, other than that, we'll keep flashing the logo so you get really into Redeemer King. <laughs> now, at its peak... I mean, the Roman Empire was a marvel. It had, at its peak... That's not the right map. No, I'm joking. No, it is. It is the right map. Don't touch anything. At a time when there were 300 million people in the world 2,000 years ago, the Roman Empire had 65 million of them. Now, you know, there's like 70 odd million people in the UK. You think 65 million is not a lot. But as a percentage of the amount of people in the world at that time, that is actually, I would suggest, quite a lot. And they had a standing army of 250,000 soldiers trained and ready to go. Organised. I mean, they were a force to be reckoned with in the known world at that time. They covered something like 4.4 million square kilometres, Rome. And it stretched across nations and continents. England, Wales, Portugal, Spain, France, Italy, Austria, Switzerland, Luxembourg, Belgium, Gibraltar, Romania, Moldova, Ukraine, coast of Northern Africa, Libya, Tunisia, Algeria, Morocco, Egypt, the Balkans, Albania, I could go on. The Roman Empire. Now the question is, in terms of religion and faith systems, how on earth, without 
Google, smartphones, the internet, modern day communications, did the Roman Empire hold it all together? That is quite a thing. I mean, so they didn't move that slow. Like they managed to control 4.4 million kilometers and 65 million people. How did they do it? Anyone know? Because I'm actually asking a question, I've got a clue. Let's see enemy talk. Now, how did they do it? Well, they did it in two ways. One was the professional army. They had a Roman garrison in most places where they needed one. And actually, when you read your Bibles, like a place like Philippi was a Roman colony where they used to, like, if a legionnaire survived his 25 years or whatever of like, frontline combat, they used to give him a patch of land like an allotment. Some of you like legionnaires, you've got allotments. They would give you an allotment and you would live as if it was mini Rome. They'd have the same currency, the same customs. They, they, even the streets replicated Rome. And that's how, they, that's how they got control. So, for instance, this is just a little sideline. So when in, when in Philippians, Paul says, you're not citizens of Rome, you're citizens of heaven now. That's a very revolutionary and radical thing to say. Like he's saying that to ex-Roman soldiers who have given their lives to Christ. You are now a citizen of heaven. Like we read that and they go, oh, that's lovely. I think I've got a song about that. It makes me feel so good. But it's not about that. It's actually saying you are now a citizen of heaven. You are not a citizen of Rome. You don't bow to Caesar anymore. You bow to the living God. You, bow, you surrender your need to Christ. That's massive. So when you understand that, you start to read the Bible slightly differently. The other thing they did, so they'd have Roman soldiers and garrisons. The other thing they did was something called syncretism. And what they would do is this. I mean, this is the puffing guide to, to Roman history, right? This is basic stuff. I'm sort of paraphrasing massively, but we haven't got loads of time. And it was simply this. You could worship your own gods. You could worship your ancestors. You could do weird stuff. You could do whatever you want. You could have whatever kind of cultural framework you wanted as long as you surrendered to the 12 gods of Rome as well. You could do what you want. You could worship Jesus as long as you worship your, your, the 12 Roman gods. You could worship a horse or a goat or hedgehogs. They didn't care what you did as long as you worship the emperor and as long as you worship the 12 gods of Rome. And then they would leave you alone. And most people, for the most part, were happy to go with it. So there was a building called the Pantheon. What I'm going to do is flash up the Redeemer King logo in the meantime, just to brainwash you. And then a photo of the Pantheon will appear. Let's see if that happens. Oh, we didn't have the logo. That's the Pantheon. And inside the Pantheon looked like this. What well, looks like this today. Have you got the, the other photo? Sorry, I know I'm rushing you through. Inside the Pantheon, around, you see where the statues are? They'd have statues of the 12 gods of Rome, and people would go in there and worship. That was like a place where they would acknowledge the gods of the Roman Empire. But what they'd also do is say, well, bring your god in. Bring your god in alongside our gods, and we'll leave you alone in the Pantheon. The only group in the whole of the Roman Empire as far as we are aware, who refused to do that were the followers of Jesus Christ. The only group. They refused to put a cross in, they refused to put a, a, a statue of Jesus in. They went, no, because we will not bow our knee to anyone but Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the risen Lord Jesus.
We will not surrender. We will not, we will not be blended. Because that's what syncretism was. We will blend. We will not blend. We stand alone. It was a very, very simple method of, of numbing and blunting a religious system and a culture for the Romans. But the Christians stood alone. And you know what happened to them. In AD 70, they were used as torches in Nero's garden during parties. They'd cover them in oil and set them on fire. And do you know what the stories are when you read the books of the martyrs? The stories are that you couldn't stop them singing to Jesus as they burnt to death in Nero's garden. There's historical accounts of it. They stood alone in their courage and their grace and their humility, but they, they refused to surrender. They were eaten by lions. They were torn apart. They were, they were put to death in the Colosseum, defenceless. But they never yielded until the 4th century. And in the 4th century, our, I think, a very clever Roman emperor emerged called Constantine. Some of you teenagers will know him as some kind of mythical film person. But this is Constantine, the Roman emperor, in the 4th century. You're going to wonder where I'm going with this, but when you get to Joshua 24, you're going to know exactly what I'm saying. Constantine was a very clever man. The story goes he was going to go to battle against the Picts or the barbarians or something. And he prayed to God or his gods. And at night he saw a vision of a cross in the sky, except it wasn't the cross of Christ. It was like the onk, you know, like the one with the circle on top. And he saw a vision. And out of that vision he said, if I win this major war or battle... I will surrender my empire to the God of the Christians. And he won. So then he said to the Christians, well, why don't you help me run the country? I mean, it wasn't as simple as that, but that's, you know, the paraphrase. And they got up the next day, help me run the country. And they went, yeah, great. Because one minute they were being persecuted. Can you imagine? One minute you're being persecuted, hunted down, running from town to town, meeting in secret. And then the emperor says, tell you what, I'll give you a seat at the table. Help me, help me, you know, I'm going to become a Christian. Although Constantine wasn't actually baptised until, I think it's like the day before he died or something. So people are a little bit windy about whether he actually did become a proper Christian or not. Many people think he was just really smart. Because what he did was suddenly, numb and blunt, the Church of Christ. Suddenly, you have professional clergymen. No insult against professional clergymen. We've got a couple knocking around here this morning. But that crept in. The Sunday best, dressing up, looking smart on a Sunday. Christmas, the Sabbath moving to a Sunday. Easter fusing pagan celebrations with Christian ones. And some of our weird things that we do to this day actually emerged out of the fourth century you know don't get rid of your christmas trees but you know enjoy your pagan symbols on the 25th of december that kind of thing it was a fusion of paganism and christianity actually took place under constantine and the church for the first time ever lost its edge they went from radical Preaching and proclaiming Christ, miracles, raising the dead, to suddenly rowing about who was the greatest, looking smart on Sundays. The, the, the Catholic Church became a political entity, and things changed. And the rest is history. 
The only time the church has ever reclaimed its truly radical roots is when something extraordinary has happened, like the Reformation. Like the Anabaptists were hunted across Europe. They started baptising adults again. It's a long story. I haven't got time to go into it. They started baptising adults again were hunted down like dogs across Europe. Or the Valdensians, way a few hundred years before that. And there are stories of miracles and the dead being raised and thousands and thousands of people coming to Christ. Or China would be a modern-day example. The Chinese church exploding under extreme pressure. It's not always under extreme pressure that these things happen, but often. There's two ways you can kill something. One is to subdue it and extinguish it. The other way is to numb and blunt it and help it lose its edge slowly over time. That in mind, read Joshua 24 with me. Not the first bit, because that's a history lesson, but the second bit from verse 14. This is Joshua at the end of Joshua 24. It's kind of like closing words before he dies. Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth and put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. Now, that's not a soft start there, is it? Fear God and get rid of your other gods. Like Joshua knows. It's a word from heaven. He knows what could happen. If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you'll serve. Whether the gods which your fathers served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you're living, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And the people answered and said, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For the Lord our God is he who brought us and our fathers up out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage and who did these great signs in our sight and preserved us all the way through, all the, all the way in which we went and amongst all the peoples from whose midst we passed. The Lord drove out from before us all the peoples, even the Amorites who lived in the land. We will also serve the Lord, for he is our God. Joshua didn't have it, actually. He wanted to push him. So he said, and Joshua said to the people, you'll not be able to serve the Lord, for he's a holy God. He's a jealous God. You'll not forgive your transgressions or your sins. And if you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after he has done good to you. And the people said to Joshua, no, we'll serve the Lord. And Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourself that you have chosen for yourselves the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. Now therefore put away the foreign gods which are in your midst and incline your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. And people said to Joshua, we will serve the Lord our God and we will obey his voice. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and made for them a statue and an ordinance in Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God and he took a large stone and set it up there under the oak. It was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be for a witness against us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord which he spoke to us. Thus it shall be for a witness against you, so that you do not deny your God. Then Joshua dismissed the people, each to his own inheritance. Well, I think there's a few little key points there, having had a little bit of a history lesson about the dangers of losing the plot or allowing other things to creep in. 
Joshua knew what could happen. He was worried about his people. They're settling a new land. There's influences all around them. The worship of other gods, other cultures. Now, there's an extreme view that you can take with this. And the extreme view is, let's shut ourselves off from the world. Let's not engage with the world because we could get so diluted. Like If we get engaged in any way, we're going to become like, like them. Ungodly and impure and like tainted. I don't believe that's what it's saying. There are Christian groups to this day that refuse to engage with other Christians or even the world for which Christ died. We are not about that in any shape or form. What this is about is being mindful of the influences around us and you each drawing your line and deciding where you're at so that you serve the Lord appropriately. And my job when we do this is to give pointers and try and understand what this means. So a few little brief points. What does it mean to fear the Lord? I mean, it is interesting that Joshua starts with this. Now, therefore... Fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth. What does that actually mean? Fear the Lord. Because in one sense, we've just sang, we're no longer slaves to fear. So it feels like an apparent contradiction in our own service, doesn't it? No longer slaves to fear, but fear the Lord. Well, I don't think it's meant to be toxic. In some translations... The word fear is actually replaced with reverence or awe. Which is probably where I fall with it. I think if you, if you go too far down the route of the word fear, you kind of feel like God's a head teacher. Apologies for any heads or deputy heads here. But there is this thing called transference, isn't there, that can take place. I, you know, I got told off a few times as a kid by the head and depth your head. I know that's a shocker for fighting and stuff like that back in the day. Now, I always dreaded not actually Mr. Barnes, the deputy head, not even Mr. Fowler, the head, but Mrs. Biggs. She was terrifying. Once, she gave me 200 lines for running down the corridor and she dragged me, but back in the day, you could sort of use physical violence against kids. You know, like bald rubbers and bits of chalk. Do anyone remember that? I got hit by a bit of chalk once and got a proper like bruise on my head. I went to my mum and went, God, she said, where'd you get that bruise from? You've been fighting. I went, no, it was a geography teacher for a bit of chalk at my head. Tell me clip round the ear. She said, well, don't do it again. That's the way it was back then. Back in the old days. I mean, it didn't affect me at all. So what I, what I, what I actually did, she dragged me 200 lines. Actually, I've not told many. I've not actually ever said this publicly. In the middle of my 200 lines, I wrote. And as I ran, you know, so I do my, I should not run down the corridor because it's dangerous. I should not run down the corridor because it's dangerous. And right in the middle, like 100 lines in a book. And then I ran down the corridor and hit Mrs. Biggs and she exploded into a thousand pieces and her guts went all up the wall. And then carried on writing and I will not run down the corridor. And she came over to all these people who'd been told off that day and she picked up the lines and ripped them. And I thought, oh, that's a relief. She's just ripping them out, reading them. Then she came to mind, she actually picked them up to read them. I'm like, no, I can remember the terror and the fear. But she only read the first page and then ripped them up and she went, and that will teach you. And I'm thinking, <laughs> But I can even now, even now I can have flashbacks. 
You know, I mean, I'm, I'm a leader, you know, I've been CEO of organisations, but even now, if I, there's a particular demeanour in a person, I can have a flashback to Mrs Biggs. Like it's ter- I can feel the terror. I don't think the Lord wants that. I think he wants reverence and awe, but I don't think he wants me thinking he's like Mrs Biggs, who is a tyrant, and actually just not a very pleasant person that hated humanity, as far as I can remember, bless her. Well, she clearly didn't like kids. But I don't think the Lord wants me viewing him like that. But I do think he wants me viewing him as a holy God. And I think with some sense of awe and wonder. You know, I'm glad that we're a laid-back church. I'm glad that people can turn up dressed how they want. I'm glad that people float in and out getting a cup of tea. I mean, I set this, a few of us were the architects of this culture. That's what we want. We want to connect with people. We want to be family. But there is a time to revere. And that has to work itself out somehow and in some way. And I think it's this. I think it's doing whatever God tells you to do no matter what. And going wherever he tells you to go no matter what the cost. Because you love him and you revere him. I think you love him so much you don't want to be away from him. And you have moments of wonder. I mean, I'm telling you, sometimes I've had moments when I'm in my car putting me worship on on my own and I've, I, I've had tears on my cheeks at a sense of wonder at the living God. I think that's what it means to revere him. I think it means not being flippant. Oh, God, don't mind. Oh, he probably does if you're talking like that. Do you know what I mean? Oh, God, don't mind. That's just my thing. Mm, not so comfortable with that kind of talk about the Lord. He's our Father in heaven and he loves us, but we treat him with a sense of reverence and awe. But not toxic. There's a difference. But not flippancy. And if we're ever flippant, then God forgive us. I think it means studying what he likes and capturing his heart, justice, mercy, humility. Heart for the poor, worshipping, rescue, living with an opposite spirit, doing the things that the, the world doesn't behave like. You know, you, you meet anger with love, you, you, you hit ungrace with grace, you do the things that get his attention and get his smile because you treat him with reverence and awe. I also think there are holy moments when we are to get on our knees. I really believe that. I've had moments where I really have needed to be on my own, where I've needed to be on my knees before the Lord. We're not very good in our culture at surrendering. We always know best, experts at everything, always got an answer. Do you know what? Sometimes just to get on your knees and say, oh, I'll kneel before our holy God and I love him so much. Here I am. I can do nothing but kneel before you. Without you, I'm nothing. That's reverence and all. That's a holy, that's a healthy fear of the Lord, I think. You know, well, it's hard for us to get on our knees in this building, but sometimes in worship I think it's good to do that. I remember uh, times reading about the old revivals of the past. I was reading about the Jonathan Edwards revivals recently where, where he would preach actually quite bland sermons, this revivalist evangelist in one sense. He would read the script which we don't really subject you to here, 
you know, like just, he would read it like this, and then God feels like this about your sin, and you should not do that, and the best thing to do is this, amen. You know, I mean, it's like, you know, you'd think it's horrific preaching, uh, but people would come under the power of God, and they would have conviction of sin, and they would crawl to the front, feeling that they were going to drop into hell. There are stories of people clinging onto pews, looking up and seeing a thread holding them from hell, by a thread of God's grace. That's, that's the, like an overwhelming sense of a holy God who's then rescuing people. I mean, that's, that's phenomenal. Somehow I think, you know, that's a supernatural work of God, but it's life-giving as well. And I'd love it if you had something of that in our culture sometimes. When we come to encounter or we are before a holy God. We're not to be flippant. Not casual in the right way. Casual like how you dress, get a cup of tea, banter, laughing. All good. All good. Love a bit of comedy, me. But there's a time for reverence. Fear the Lord. He'll hold you on a narrow path. Fear God. The one who can snuff out your life and your eternal destiny. Number two, serve him with all faithfulness. Now this is a tricky one. Fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and truth. In your NIVs it says, serve him with all faithfulness, not sincerity. I think you can cut it either way. Just to say this, I think culture shifted a lot. And I'm seriously not wanting to get anyone here. I'm really not, it's not my style. But when I first came to church, first met Christ... I just wanted to be at church. Any of you ever experienced that? I just wanted to be, I mean, I know some of you just come to Christ recently instantly nodding because you just want to be around other Christians. And you're so in love with Jesus, you just want to serve him. Like I, wanted, I came to Christ in a brethren assembly where, where it wasn't a happy place. It wasn't welcoming. But I wanted to be at everything. I wanted to be at the prayer meetings, the Bible studies. I, I turned up early. I, I wanted to set the chairs out, and, and I wanted to be a witness at work. You know, I wanted to surround myself with Christians. I tried to set up a Christian union in my bank when I first got a job, and I just wanted to get stuck in. And there was something about not missing church. Do you remember, some of you? Like, I mean, I'm going back to when I was 18, so it's like 30 years ago or so, 28 years ago. But when I first went to church, like, if you didn't turn up on a Sunday... Someone would phone you. Or they'd be like, we used to have a term. Do you remember this term, some of you? Backslider. We didn't go to, I'm glad we got rid of it. But that's, do you there used to be this term like, and people would talk like this, they go, Carl's not been to church for two weeks. And someone else would go, he's backsliding. And they'd be like, no, don't label me with this. Terrible brush. There's tarnished me with this brush. It would be this like horrible, heinous crime that you were losing the plot. Now, I think, looking back, people sacrifice their families and having a life on the altar of church, not necessarily their faith. It definitely went out of balance and it was totally toxic. Two services every week, a home group, prayer meetings, Bible studies, youth clubs. I can remember Karen and I, we were working like an hour and a half commute. We'd get up in the morning, go to work, and we'd literally dash back to run a youth club. 
and have like 30 kids piling into our little starter home. And then we'd go, get up and go to work the next day, hour and a half in, hour and a half back, and then dash back so we could go to the prayer meeting, and then go to work and then come back, and then dash back so we could go to the home group. And then, then you'd miss a Sunday and somebody would go, where's Carl and Callan there, backsliding? You know, you're like, no! So you literally wear yourself out. Because that was the kind of culture that was around. It wasn't balanced. I think, however, we've now tended to go the opposite way. If I'm entirely honest, I'm not necessarily saying that's completely prevalent here, but certainly the statistics of church attendance and involvement around the whole of the UK now is that the average Christian will attend church once every four to six weeks across the whole of the UK. And the average Christian will do something in church for about a year and then stop. In church across the UK. Now, this could sound harsh, and I'm not meaning it to, but I don't think, where, well, whereas in one sense we used to sacrifice our families and having a life on the altar of church, I think now what we do is we sacrifice the Lord's work on the altar of our own priorities. I've got to call it as I see it. I think we do. But there's a balance. So I'm not saying be all toxic and weird and this is not, I'm not telling anyone off. That's not what we do. But I've got to call truth. We could all do something. Somewhere, somehow. We're a rescue mission, not a cruise ship. I'm kind of talking church capital C here. The church around the country is not a cruise ship. It's not like 90% passengers, 10% crew. We are a warship. It's all hands on deck. We've all got to get involved because there are people in our town who are going to hell. And we can't let that happen on our watch. We can't. Now I'm not saying everyone's got to go on the T-rotor. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying show up every week. I'm not. I'm not saying go to every meeting. I'm saying everyone find your unique niche where you can serve the Lord with sincerity and faithfulness and then do it and get your head down and do it long term until the Lord tells you to stop for all the dips and the highs and the lows. I'm not even suggesting it should be within the church. I think that's old school thinking. I'm thinking whether it's in the world, whether it's in your workplace, find your niche, find your calling, find the thing that you can do and apply yourself to the rescue mission of the church. Does that make sense? I'm, I'm not saying it's necessarily even here. I'm saying serve the Lord with sincerity, truth and in faithfulness. Keep it balanced. Don't injure yourself. Don't sacrifice your family. Like that's, that's the way we used to do it in the past, and it wasn't good. If you feel your work is genuinely a calling, great. If your hobby is being used to win people to Christ, if your priority is out there, then do it. Keep it balanced. But, but get out there and do it. If you, one of the things we've found is Sometimes as the church, and I've been on this journey a couple of times now, starts to get a little bit bigger, which we've experienced, you start to hear something that you didn't hear at the start. When you start a church, everyone feels like family. If God graces the church and it grows, and we're now like 270 people in total, then, then 
people start to say things like, I don't feel connected anymore. Or I feel lonely. I don't feel part of it. You don't hear that at the start because everyone knows everyone. But you hear it later. And this is another reason why I'm saying this. Because what tends to happen is people will accidentally or drift into prioritising other stuff outside of God's kingdom and then come to church on Sunday and feel disconnected. But if you find your way in to serving with God's people, you will feel connected. And often the people who don't, maybe you're not in a connect group or you're not serving in some way or finding your calling or your mission that you can plug into Redeemer King. And then you'll feel more connected. Does that make sense? So there are spin-off benefits to serving the Lord faithfully and with sincerity. And I say this as someone who has done this and made this mistake myself. Karen and I actually took a year off going to church once. We were so broken, burnt out, tired, slightly fed up. We actually took a year out. We used to go to a little home group thing. We used to bring a bit of food and have a lasagna and a side salad and take communion together and about 20 people. It was like a new expression of church. And we did that for a year on a Friday night. But we took time out, partly because we'd gone too far the other way. And then when we first started the church here, a bunch of us probably went too far the other way. So I've walked both sides. So I'm not talking with any sense of being weird or chippy. I think there's a balanced way to serve the Lord faithfully with sincerity that will help you feel part of the family and also bless the Lord. And try and recapture that sense of passion that we had when you first gave your life to Christ. It's so important. We have to find a way to serve, I think, but keep it balanced. Third thing, throw away the gods of your ancestors. This is the final point. What does that actually mean for us? I mean, it was obvious for them because they're coming to the land of Canaan where there were loads of other gods being worshipped and there were loads of other influences around them. And it was like, ditch the other gods. They actually didn't do it, by the way. They weren't able to hold the line. So by the time you get to the book of Judges, there were people worshipping other gods all over the shop and they had to recover the ground. Um, but I was just pondering, what are the gods of this age? Do we need to ditch? It's quite hard teaching this morning, isn't it? You're going to never want to come back. I, I wrote a little list, a small one. There's only four, or three maybe. Number one is money and possessions. I think that is definitely a god of the age. Commercialism and wanting stuff, covetousness. Coveting things is a spin-off from the God of this age. You know, like, I look at my neighbour's car and I want it. There's two solutions to coveting. The first one's not godly. If you see someone who's got a Porsche 911, you really, really want one, you can't get it out of your head, just buy it. And then you won't be coveting anymore. That's a joke. Just think, oh dear, it went down really badly. <laughs> but the second one... The second one is just to give it to God and don't do it. Just, just give it a week or two and you'll find a desire leaves. But money and possessions is a God of the age. Building bigger barns. Wanting more stuff. Nothing wrong with nice things at all in any sense. It's when it becomes your God. And you've got to work that out for yourself. I think comfort and security is actually a God of this age. And feeling safe. 
I, I think that that is a primary driver for many people's lives. And yet when I read my Bible, it's about adventure, risk, journeying in faith, pushing the boundaries, living on the edge, putting your feet in flooded water, being homeless, discomfort, pioneering. But comfort, safety. So we strive for that now. I think it's possibly a god of the age. And the last one I wrote was narcissism. I think the biggest giveaway that we are in the most narcissistic age the world has ever seen is the selfie. Narcissism. Putting yourself at the centre of everything. It's all about me. How I feel and the impact it will have on me. Because to live for Christ is, it's all for Jesus. I'll lay my life down. I'll seek first the kingdom, and then all these things are added to me. Maybe. But the sin of the age, I think, or God of the age, is probably yourself. It is a God of this age. We make ourselves little G-gods. Here's a little test for those of you on Instagram. If your Instagram feed or your Facebook feed or your photos are 80% selfies, you might be suffering from narcissistic tendencies. But it is definitely a god of the age. So here's my suggestion. First one, I'm going to name drop, I learned from Graham Kendrick. He of Shine Jesus Shine fame. I was actually, this sounds like I'm name-dropping superstar Christian worship leaders. I kind of am, but I didn't mean it for that reason. It's just what happened. I was actually sitting next to Graham Kendrick on a plane trip to America once. And the stewardess came over. We were going out to do a conferencing together. The stewardess came over and she said, what would you like to drink? And I saw a couple of little cheeky white wine bottles and some pretzels and some dry roasted nuts. I went, oh, I'll have a, one of them little white wines, chilled white wines. She said, do you want some snacks? I went, yes, I'll have some. Pretzels and some dry roasted nuts, please. Anything else? Oh, yeah, a pack of those sandwiches. Wonderful. So I went out to the States. And she went, do you want another one of those little white wines? And I went, oh, that would be lovely, thanks. So I had a couple of these little bottles of, well, only a couple of glasses. I had a couple of these little bottles of things. And I was sitting next to Graham. And she said, what do you like? So he went, just water, please. And I thought, ooh, I feel so dirty. It's like sitting next to the Lord. It was actually. It is, I'm sitting next to the Lord for the next nine hours. And then, and then, so I'm sitting there like, feeling like racks of guilt, having me little white wines and me pretzels. <laughs> I'm like, try not to let him see. And then, and then Graham had a sip of water and got his Bible out. And then like, and I, I, had, um, I had a 2000 AD comic I wanted to read. <laughs> so I'm like, I'm reading Judge Dredd and he gets the word of the Lord out and he sort of ponders on the Psalms and then starts praying under his breath. And then he, then he pulled the blanket up to his chin and started praying for about an hour and then went to sleep. And I just felt really dirty. I felt so unclean. And anyway, when he, when, he, when he woke up later and I said, I went, I thought I need to make some conversation here. There's another funny story that happened after this, which I haven't got time to tell you. But he, um, I looked at him and I went, so, um, Graham, this is before I got to know him really well. You look like, you set up March for Jesus and there's like a million people in Brazil sing your songs and, you know, like, you, got, you, you perform to tens of thousands of people all over the world. How do you stay humble? And you know what he did? He looked at me and he went, he sort of looked at me and went, well, 
you just do humble things. I went, ooh, okay. <laughs> and I watched him for a week. And he is. He's a really humble guy. He nearly got me nicked at security, which is another story for another time. But he's a really humble guy. If you want to ditch your other gods, the gods of this age, do you know what you do? Serve other people. Put other people first. Do humble things. Don't stand on your rights. Be a living sacrifice. Prepare to be inconvenienced. Open your homes to people. Be a slave to Christ. And history does show for God's people that when they never did that, it went badly. And when they did, it went well. In family life, practically. Talk about the Lord. Put him first. So it means to fear the Lord and serve him faithfully. Share stories with your kids about the things you've seen God do if you're a young family. It will make a difference. It will also put Christ at the centre of your family life. Prioritise the kingdom. This is hard for those of you that are new into this. Very hard. But make decisions that don't take your family away from church. It's simple. Do things that put Christ at the centre. It's not always easy. But think about commitments that draw you away from stuff that puts Jesus at the centre. Like Karen and I tried to do that with our kids all the way along and when there were pressures that would take us away on Sundays, we found Saturday alternatives. Or it's not always easy if you're new in, I understand that. But as you go forward, I really, really, really want us to have some kind of youth work facility for this town and for our kids. I really want to be running youth clubs and stuff so that I can help you do that as families. You need to know I'm, I'm agitated about it. I want somewhere where your children can go and be blessed and safe and in an atmosphere of positive faith where Jesus is right at the centre. I want a facility where we can do that. I'm gunning for it because I want to help make this easy for you. You know, the people who do our youth and children's work here we're blessed with because they're making it easier for us. At work, to finish with this, don't be afraid to stand for Christ. Serve the Lord with sincerity and faithfulness. Do not be afraid to stand for Christ, even if it will cost you your job. You will regret it if you put your job before Christ. You will. If you're a committed follower of Jesus. It will take a lot to get you to that place because there's lots of conversations to come before that can happen, but do not compromise Christ before your work. You will regret it. I can remember, and I only ever preach what I've lived, but I can remember being told I was a top salesman in London for my bank. No, that's hard to believe. Duck or dive, I'm not, of course. Well, I was a top salesman for my bank in London, financial products back in the day. And they brought out a new thing where they were marketing financial products using astrological symbols. Which for those of you who are not followers of Jesus, we would say that's not compatible. So the idea was you go, oh, I'm an Aquarius, you need to talk about pensions. And they would get all these sales leads and then stickers in front of us. Because I was a top salesman in London, they wanted me to train 100 salesmen how to use these new marketing resources based around astrological symbols to get bums on seats to flog pensions, unit trusts, high net worth sales, all that kind of stuff. And I refused to do it. 
And I stood up in the boardroom in Baker Street in London in front of all the salesmen and I left it to that moment, which is probably not wise, but I was young. And I said, I cannot do this with all conscience because I'm a committed follower of Jesus Christ. I use that term. Since I was a Christian, so I'm a committed follower of Jesus Christ. My Bible tells me that astrology is not compatible with being a follower of Jesus. And this gasp went up around the room. So I said, instead, I'm going to tell you some of the stuff I've been doing with my guys to generate leads. At the end of that meeting, which lasted 35 minutes, and was highly embarrassing, and I felt sick all the way through, my regional sales director, who is a big guy in our bank, he was big physically and he's a big name, came over to me and he literally had me against a wall. And he said, he was like this, he put it in my chest. His name is Nick. He said, as long as I'm in this bank, you're never going to get promoted. In fact, I'm going to look at a way to do you. How embarrassing. How ridiculous. 22, 23 years old. Got a mortgage to pay, just got married. He said, you're an embarrassment to me, embarrassment to my team. Could have at least talked about this and blah, 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 blah. Stupid hocus pocus stuff about Jesus, what he said. So he said. He said, we had you down. We were going to promote you to be the youngest area manager in this bank. And that is, you are stuffed. Against the wall. I went home on the tube train that night and I was like, oh my days. I'm done. And my income could go up and down every quarter depending on my sales performance too. I thought, I'm done. Literally, three months later, we were all called to a meeting and Nick was there taking it. And he said, this is a facts of life meeting. Our bank is just about to be taken over by one of the other big five banks and I've just been made redundant. And this is the future unless you all pull your socks up and blah, 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 very aggressive sales environment. Lost his job. And he said, when you go? And he said, I'm out within a week. So just been in like 10 to 12 weeks at that meeting. And then they read out a list of names of people they wanted to talk to. And I came out of the meeting and got promoted, everybody, based on my sales performance. Doesn't always work out like that. But I do remember feeling a little bit smug in the Lord on the way home. <laughs> Stand against my God. Call my God hocus pocus. You honour the Lord, he will honour you. It may not always work out where you are. It may be that it will be bumpy. But I promise you, if you honour the Lord, you won't regret it. Winding right back. Syncretism, dilution, numbing and blunting. That's how, that's how Constantine, I believe, tried to undermine the Christian faith in the fourth century. And it is the major work now of Satan against the church of God. We have to find our sharp edge again. Fear the Lord. Hold him with awe and reverence. Serve him faithfully. Find your place. Don't sacrifice your family on the altar of ministry. But find that balanced way where you can serve the Lord. We can all be about his beautiful rescue mission in this town. Prioritise the kingdom. and Put him first and he will honour you. It's the words of Joshua for the 21st century. It's not changed. It's the same God with the same message. We have to find our way. You know, do not sacrifice your life on the altar of the gods of this age. Don't do it. Serve the Lord and love him. And see what he does in your families and in the generations that will follow. I mean, 
you know, I'm so grateful that both of my kids love the Lord, and I know many of you here, you've seen your kids love the Lord, and there but by the grace of God, you know, I'm like, we, we've done, made decisions that have just not been good, and we've made mistakes as parents, and we've made mistakes in ministry, and we've made mistakes in work. I mean, I make mistakes, like, so many times. If you're having a go at life, you're going to make mistakes, like, as a daily thing. But I tell you what we have done. The one thing I know I can say with confidence we've always done is put the Lord first. And that is why we see the flow of blessing. And if we put the Lord first in his church, we will see a flow of blessing. I'm absolutely guarantee it.